You know, you have the narrative that we were discussing, touching on earlier with London, kind of this idea of Paris stealing London's thunder. The tale of two cities narrative, you know, it's London versus Paris. Totally. Pretty deep cultural narrative. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest stories down to earth. This week, we're back with another episode of the Art Angle Roundup, where we come to chat through some of the biggest stories of the month. Joining me and our chief art critic, Ben Davis. Hey, Ben. Good morning from New York. Is our global news editor, Naomi Ray. Hey, Naomi, how's it going? Hi, Kate. Joining you from London. I'm glad, Naomi, to see that you're still standing after two weeks of back-to-back art fairs in Europe. Um, You just got back from Paris, is that right? Chasing around the aisles and all the nighttime events? Yeah, Paris was uh, amazing. Um, But yes, very exhausted after doing it straight after freeze, as I imagine most of uh, the art world who've been through both of them are feeling right now. The most glamorous and worst assignment in the business is art (laughs) fair coverage. Just you go and you, you know, you're lucky if you come back emotionally intact. (laughs) For sure. It's very rewarding and very punishing. I want to get to talking about the fairs, Freeze London and Paris Plus, which was its second edition this year. But I have an urgent question. What was the best party, post-fair event, exhibition? What was the biggest highlight for you from the two weeks? You know, being in Paris is always a really great opportunity because of the great museums that there are out there. I spent some time, you know, at dinner parties and sort of after work events kind of within the Paris scene. But it's always the museums that really have to be highlighted when you ask a question like that. The Fondation Louis Vuitton threw a really amazing Rothko show together. I say threw it together. I'm sure it took years, but there's 115 Mark Rothko paintings in this wow. show. And it was completely mind boggling, to be honest. I am a fan of I'm Rothko. I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. I'm a fan of Rothko. You know, I, I even have like a Rothko poster like in my house, in my living room. And so I was really excited to go and see the show. And I think, you know, when I came back from the show, I wanted to take down the poster because I was like, that's a betrayal. It was really amazing to kind of see it. There's a whole like areas of Rothko's over that I had no idea about, like his early work in the 1930s, kind of like figurative painting, these subway scenes conveying the kind of spirit of the depression in New York. And also a bunch of nudes. I had no idea that Rothko painted nudes. There's this kind of whole neo-surrealist period as well. that You kind of see him kind of grappling with what's going on kind of in his life. And then before you even get into sort of where he moves into abstraction and the kind of multiform works. It's completely amazing. And, and particularly for me, the best parts were the kind of later parts of his oeuvre where he kind of goes past the kind of classic Rothko works that we know. And I'm sure if you've been watching the auctions, you see a lot of these kind of really beautiful, colourful sort of colour fields, really expressive come up. And they are often regarded as the kind of pinnacle of Rothko's creative production. But he sort of moves beyond those and into this kind of very like dark palette and honestly those works are kind of more expressive and it's like he moves through that period and and they're like darker but more colorful and and kind of vibrating and in the Fondation they're hung low so you're directly looking at them in these really dimly lit galleries and you just kind of have this experience of standing in front of them as your eyes kind of adjust to the darkness and they kind of hover off the walls towards you. 
I was told by many people in Paris that it was the best show that they've ever seen. And it's definitely up there. Wow. So worth the hardship of two weeks of art fair uh, mania just for that, really. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't think that there will be an opportunity to see a show of that kind of scale. I mean, for the loan agreements alone, I'm sure lots of deals were made to sort of get loan backs and sort of put that together. I know that Rothko's son, Christopher, was very involved. And obviously you have Mr. Arno with his personal collection involved too. What about you, Kate? You were uh, on the international flight circuit for the fairs. Would you see anything when you were in London? You know, I was just thinking as Naomi was talking, it really does feel like the big blockbusters are back. I would bring up the Philip Guston retrospective that I saw at the Tate Modern. I mean, it's so hard to get around London. I was in London for freeze, and there's many things I didn't get to see, but I was really affected by that show, especially given all the distressing news in the world at the moment. You know, Guston's paintings, they deal with violence and injustice and the normalization of violence and injustice, as well as his own kind of helplessness as an artist to, like, face these big problems. It just was totally a shot to the heart and an amazing show. And also a real chance to see the development of an artist throughout his career. You know, his early figurative works that look more like De Chirico than what you would later associate him with and his abstract era, which wasn't my favorite, but it was a really beautiful exhibition and well curated after a postponement. I guess it will be touring around, which is maybe different from the Rothko show because it's at a private foundation. So I feel like that's a real one-time chance to see it. What about you, Ben? Have you seen anything recently? Any big blockbusters to mention? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it kept me pretty busy doing things that aren't looking at art lately uh, here in... But I wrote a review of this show called Art for the Millions at the Metropolitan Museum, which is art of the 1930s. And I actually got to go see it with a bunch of people that I do a labor study group, a history of labor study group with. We had been reading about the 1930s and they were really interested in seeing the show. And so I got to give them my own little homespun tour of it. And I really liked the show, but to see it with people who actually, you know, some of them know a bunch about art, some of them know nothing about art, and to see how it really came alive for them, this art by uh, folks like Alice Neal, Ben Sean, Charles White, Dorothy Lang, Walker Evans, and so on. It actually like really reaffirmed my belief in art in a little bit of a way, just to see how meaningful these things can be when they really connect with people. Really great. But generally, you know, it's been gloomy here in New York and rainy and uh, I've been inside a lot. <laughs> so let's pivot back to the art fairs. Naomi, you, as Ben mentioned, you led our coverage of VIP first day sales reports from both fairs, which is why we expect that you're quite tired. But um, maybe you can give us a rundown of those and a few of the biggest takeaways. Yeah, sure. I mean, I always ask people when they want me to talk about art fairs, which do you want me to talk about first, the art or the art market? (laughs) (laughs) Good question. Yeah, they're in the fold together. I mean, let's start with the art market. And I know we have some takeaways from the aesthetic point of view because I did the best boost, but we can get to that in a bit, maybe. Yeah, sure. So we went into kind of this season after the summer, and I think you need to understand what has been happening, that the sort of macroeconomic circumstances in the world began to be felt in the art market this summer. You know, that's sort of interest rates rising after being held artificially low for more than a decade. And 
rising inflation altogether has meant that it's just more difficult for uh, rich people to sort of access money that they would have been sort of using to buy art. Mm. So this is kind of the starting point for all of that, which is not helped by the kind of geopolitical uncertainty or the beginning of an election cycle in the US. The situation in the Ukraine was happening all back in Art Basel in June. So how was that kind of being felt then? People were talking about us sort of sliding into uh, what they call a buyer's market rather than a seller's market, which essentially, I mean, if you're asking me, it means that collectors and advisors are kind of happy. They're reporting easier access to kind of coveted works. Gallerists are kind of more open to negotiation on price point. Waiting lists for artists that were kind of inaccessible are suddenly kind of shorter. So going into freeze, we continued to kind of see that trend. You add into the mix, you know, some more geopolitical uncertainty with the situation that's unfolding in the Middle East. And altogether, I think what I was observing in the summer has continued. So prices of artworks seem to be stabilizing. There's still, I think, a fair amount going for London in all of this. There's a favorable exchange rate for the dollar. That's true of Paris as well. London is on sale. That was a line that was from one of your reports, I know. Yeah, an irresistible quote. You know, people were saying the same thing last year in London. Altogether, the situation is difficult for the market, but it's not really as bad as it could be. I mean, what we've seen in crises past are that people sort of fall out, people move to sort of blue chip established artists, they stop buying the young, but that's definitely not something that was happening in London. There's still as much kind of demand, maybe even if there's less demand, there's still enough demand for the young artists that prices have stabilized. They're certainly not coming down and the waiting lists may have been cut in half, but there's still a waiting list. On top of all that laundry list of themes that you just mentioned, isn't also Brexit the other thing behind this, particularly when you're comparing these two fairs, that there's this question of how much has that damaged the image of London? And maybe even more importantly, like how much is Paris able to take advantage of that in terms of just becoming the place that strikes the tone of being like international and welcoming? I mean, I know that's something people talk about in the bigger economy, and it's definitely something that filters into the art conversation, right? And there's a lot of horse race talk about how these two things relate to each other, interact with each other, particularly because they come right on top of each other, almost like forcing the question of like, who do you pick? I was just going to add to that, and I'm curious your thoughts, Naomi. Like, we did two other stories about galleries opening in both of these cities. Like, so there seems to be like a second wave of galleries opening in Paris and London. So are they lifting each other up or are they competing with each other? It's kind of unclear from my point of view. I think that the idea of Paris competing with London and kind of coming to steal the art market crown is a really compelling narrative. And it's why we've heard it again and again. I think that London's image has suffered greatly, I think, in the mind of Europe and the rest of the world because of Brexit. But fundamentally, like the market conditions that made London the market hub that it is today haven't really shifted all of that much. It is still strategically located between New York, Europe and Shanghai, and it is completely the center of the art market here. I think Paris certainly is on the up, and I think that it's enjoyed a kind of perception of taking that crown back. And I think a lot of galleries that formerly used London as an entry point to the European Union just for logistical reasons 
it had the lowest import tax, are now opening outposts in Paris to kind of use Paris as the entry point to the rest of the European Union. But I don't think that Paris's success really will take away from London. I think that something is happening in Paris, but I don't think it will be at the demise of London's scene. Well, maybe let's talk about how they felt compared to each other. The quote I took away from your report on Perry Plus was from an art advisor who says, at Freeze, they still show a lot of British artists. It's full of color, fun, and playful works. In Paris, it's much drier, more subtle and restrained, more intellectual, and more conceptual work. Is that how it felt, kind of? Yeah, I mean, that is how it felt. And I think that Freeze, London, you have to think about the audience for the fair and the kind of identity of the fair. It's contemporary art, it's living artists. It's kind of got a reputation for being experimental and fun and all of those things. And so I think that the artwork that was brought there, especially for its 20th anniversary edition, kind of really tried to sort of acknowledge those roots. And it was very colorful, very fun. When you look at Paris, I think you are also not just looking at Paris and what a Parisian audience would want. You're looking at an art Basel fair that has come and has completely different kind of expectations as to the kind of level of work that you're going to bring. Vetting the booths, they had to be sort of more considered, more kind of up market, I think more expensive works. And I think if you looked across the fair, you could see that in definitely there was less colour, there was kind of more... Um, thoughtful presentations that were in line with some of the museum shows in the city. I mean, Pace had a whole booth that was inspired by Mark Rothko. It sort of commissioned artists to create new work inspired by Rothko and also some secondary market pieces by Rothko's contemporaries, such as Agnes Martin. I was just going to ask you, Kate, because you did a report from Freeze. It wasn't, did it feel playful? I guess the way I was reading your thing was that it had some of the same feeling that we talked about in the last podcast we did about the armory fairs where it did feel like there's a little bit of a retreat to decorative work. I mean, you did a report picking out what you thought were more experimental stuff, but the overall tone. I totally think that Sybil Rashad's comment and Naomi's observations square with mine. I wrote another piece because I was so struck by like how like whimsical and fun and pretty everything was at Freeze, which echoed a lot of what Katya Kazakina, who was on the last Art Angle Roundup, was saying about the Armory show as well. You know, like there was this huge booth of Damien Hirst's paintings of flowers. At Pilar Corias, there was this booth that had watercolor wallpaper and watercolor rug. And then it had these like paintings by Sophie von Hellerman that were like it was called Dreamland and they were of Ferris wheels and roller coasters and carousels. So there was this kind of like whimsy to the fair that from reading Naomi's report was not in Paris. I mean, even just thinking about pace, they had a great booth at Freeze, certainly. They represent a lot of interesting artists, but it didn't have the rigorous kind of curatorial overtones that it sounds like the Paris Plus booth had. Would you agree, Naomi? Yeah, I mean, I think galleries were also holding back material for Paris, mm. you know, intentionally. Sadie Coles brought this amazing Sarah Lucas car sculpture, which, I mean, if you ask me, that would have been totally great for Freeze. It's British artists, it's eccentric, it's loud. And also Sarah Lucas has a show on at Tate Britain right now. And one of those car sculptures is in the show. But I asked Sadie about it and she said, this is basically an advertisement for London, which I think sidesteps a little bit. The question is why you didn't bring that to London. Just to say, aesthetically, looking in from the outside, reading, I forget which of the two of your guys' report it was in, there was some note about how there's just a lot of painting booths that had a kind of a 
made over to be kind of like a carnival thing where mm. it was like you try and transform a painting show into kind of an installation show by adding, you know, like wallpaper or furniture or props. And I was thinking of that as a very kind of like low level trend in the air that kind of maybe trying to square the circle between the decorative vibe and trying to preserve a more experimental, installational, immersive kind of energy. And ironically, I'm curious if you agree, Naomi, but it had a different effect because so many people opted for this kind of like Technicolor Dreamhouse thing that, <laughs> for example, Marianne Boski had a painting show of painting show, a booth of works by Daniel McKinney. And these were just small paintings of portraits of women in various states of rest. And they were quite small and the booth was white. And it was one of the most standout booths. I listed it in my best booths of Freeze London because the paintings were so strong, but it also stood out because they didn't feel the need to like bolster it with some sort of like decor. Yeah. I agree with you. I think that the paintings were amazing. But I will also say that the reason that Marianne didn't have to do any of that stuff is that Daniel McKinney had an auction debut earlier on this year and is now really the hottest artist. So it was all sold before the fair. And you don't have to try and scream for people's attention when everything is sold mm. and, you know, have people looking at the work. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. I guess, well, although <laughs> one wonders within the case of like someone like Damien Hirst, were they all pre-sold as well? His fancy flowers? I'm not sure if they were all pre-sold. I'm, I'm sure that they all found homes by the end of the first day, if not. No comment on whether that will bear fruit later on, probably. Will the Damien Hirst flowers bear fruit? <laughs> but the... <laughs> To speak to your comment, because I know, Kate, you were observing in Freeze a lot of these kind of flowers and still lives. And I think that speaks also to this kind of idea of like sort of established art historical tradition, as well as this kind of desire for fluff and fun. In Paris, I was kind of looking out for that as well. And I didn't see it. I mean, I think even on Gagosian's booth, there was a Jade Fadojutimi work, but it wasn't kind of this more colorful Jade work that we're used to. It's kind of a black one. So it was, I think, definitely selected for Paris in this kind of more like muted, serious kind of artistic tone. That's interesting. I've never even seen kind of like a grayscale painting of hers. I wanted to ask you, Naomi, something that you mentioned in your Paris Plus report was this idea that maybe Paris Plus could overshadow our Basel the headquarters in Switzerland. Could you speak a little bit about that? I made that comment because people were very focused on kind of comparing Paris to London and also to the fair, the sort of homegrown French fair that Art Basel came in and usurped FIAC. And I think for FIAC, certainly what dealers were looking forward to was being able to move inventory, or that's a very, very cynical way to put it, but to sell works that are more expensive. And I think the first year that definitely did happen and they were hoping that that trend would continue. You know, you have the narrative that we were discussing, touching on, earlier with London and kind of this idea of Paris stealing London's thunder. The tale of two cities narrative, you know, it's London <laughs> versus Paris. It's totally pretty deep cultural narrative. Exactly. But if you look at the kind of numbers at the end of the day, I mean, Paris did better than London. The most expensive work placed in London by the end of day one, I think was 3.2 million and it was 6 million in Paris. So, you know, that sort of makes me think that we've been asking the wrong questions and certainly the Americans prefer to come to Paris and Basel's a small city. The kind of museums and hotels can't really compete with the kind of creature comforts that Paris can offer. So definitely that's kind of one thing that people were saying, oh, I'd rather come to Paris than Basel. But that only can be true if Paris can hold the market and, you know, can get access to just the same kind of quality of work and dealers can make sales that can compete with that. 
If you ask me whether it can, I think you've got to look at the size of the fairs. The ephemeral Grand Palais, which is the temporary venue that the Paris Plus is taking over, is really small. But the Grand Palais, at which it'll go back into next year, is not that much bigger. Compared to the sort of enormous convention center in Basel, the amount of material that you can kind of offer in a fair in Basel is just so much greater. So, I mean, was a big focus from dealers on this idea that, oh, all the action doesn't have to happen in like the VIP hour of day one, because they can like switch their booth presentations and sort of, they were saying, you know, day three, day four, they want to make sales. But in the end of the day, you know, to compete with Art Basel proper, you need to sort of scale up. Yeah. So that's the thing I was thinking about underneath some of the reporting that you were doing is, yeah, again, like these are horse race coverage, which is always kind of deceptive, you know, because it focuses on really immediate factors instead of bigger things. And, and one of the things I think about Paris is just like, it's hard for Paris, for me to believe that Paris is going to be like this exciting new thing. It's just like one of the most fossilized by its own legend cities in the world, you know? And one of the things that means it's like very expensive to find space there. And I mean, the magical thing that makes an art scene happen and that an art fair comes in on top of to kind of like capitalize on has to do with art production and the excitement of real art scenes. And I think what's happening everywhere in the world is that that's getting smothered beneath inequality and money, you know, that the art business kind of ultimately stomps on art production because if you don't have cheap space for artists to live and hang out and young emerging dealers to like try new stuff, you get fossilized. And I think it's just like seductive narrative about that relates to very old narratives of rivalry between London and Paris and so on. But beneath it all, there's like a very similar processes of kind of a sclerosis and uh, entropy going on. I don't know. I think that with the fairs, I mean, you kind of, it, you got to know whether the question is really that, well, like, what is the purpose of a fair? Is the fair's purpose, like you sort of were, were implying, Ben, to sort of showcase and create a space for the local places seen? Or is an art fair's purpose to facilitate commerce for a global art market? Well, I think that Basel is better because you can float down the Rhine and you cannot swim in the Seine yet, but that might be changing soon. So let's see. <laughs> it is about the extracurricular activities and not only the art market or the cost of living for artists. <laughs> Just kidding, obviously. Speaking about artists, and in particular, an artist that I don't think has been at an art fair yet, although you'll be able to tell us, Ben, a big story that you covered and then covered the fallout from was about an artist named Evan Rodriguez, an artist who most of us who work in this field might not have actually heard of before. And in spite of our cluelessness, he's a painter and he has 7.4 million followers on Instagram. And he also got very mad at you this past week. So can you tell us about Devin? <laughs> well, I should say, yeah, I mean, uh, we might not have heard of him, might not be a household name to us, but that shows how parochial some of these conversations are because uh, he's not just got, I don't know, whatever you said, number of million followers on Instagram. He's got 30 million followers on TikTok and can claim with some credibility to be the most popular painter in the world. Gets recognized on the streets. And you might know him as the guy who draws people on the subway. In 2020, when TikTok kind of took over the public consciousness during the quarantine period, 
actually just studying TikTok marketing, from what I understand. He had the inspiration to do post from the subway where he would post images of himself drawing someone in the subway sort of secretly and then surprising them with a drawing at the end. His catchphrase is, Miss, I drew you, or Sir, I drew you, and filming their emotional reactions. And that really warmed people's hearts at that moment and continues to do so. These posts get like millions upon millions of views. Eventually drew so much attention that he was signed by UTA Artist Space, which is the art arm of this international Hollywood talent agency. He's a very technically gifted realist painter as well. To coincide with Armory Week here in New York, which gives a suggestion that I think they are trying to like bring these two audiences together, like get him an audience with the fine art crowd, if that's what you want to call it. They did a pop-up show in Chelsea and of his paintings, which depict people on the subway. So I wrote a review of this. It was a critical review. It wasn't a pan, but it was critical and sort of analyzing the phenomenon. And yeah, when I talk about how I haven't had a chance to see a lot of art or get out of my office a lot. I mean, one of the things I've been dealing with is I posted this article on a Friday and woke up on a Saturday with just a lot of anger from him on Saturday and throughout the weekend. Artists get mad at you all the time when you criticize them. I've never experienced anything like this because I've never experienced an artist of his popularity or the specific kind of audience that he has come at me and I experienced just like an overwhelming, like thousands and thousands of negative comments swarming my Instagram posts. You know, any picture of me that I've ever posted is covered with comments about what a bad person I am and how dare I hurt Devin Rodriguez. The really unpleasant experience that was disorienting because I could tell that most people hadn't really read my article. You know, they would accuse me of saying things I hadn't said or not saying things I did say. Just a really intense experience and really made me reflect on what the nature of this artistic phenomenon is and what this kind of reaction meant. Just to sort of illustrate, so before we get to, because you wrote a second piece, which I mm-hmm. think you unpack some of the things that are at play here, but Just to sort of illustrate the sort of anger, Devin said, now you guys see what I mean when I say in my interviews, I never had an art show before because I always felt the gatekeeping. After everything I've done, they're still trying to gatekeep me. So I'll continue to preach. If you have someone like at Ben Stoppable, which is your Instagram (laughs) handle in your life, don't ever let them diminish your shine. So this was sort of like the tone, you know, that I assume you had a lot more of these at your DMs. This is maybe a segue to talk about your response. There seems to be a conflation between a critical review and a negative review, because I read your review twice and it's not really a negative review, but it is a critical look into his practice and sort of the different forces that have generated his fame, right? Look, I've been negatively reviewed. You know, I've written books that have gotten bad reviews. Like, it's not a pleasant experience. It's hard not to feel personally attacked. You put a lot of yourself into what you do. I am empathetic. It's not something one should do just to hurt somebody, you know? But the thing that struck me is I feel like in the social media space, this is what I ended up processing out of this experience. In the social media space, I think Devon Rodriguez has an audience that's much bigger than most artists because people aren't really interacting with his art. They're interacting with, well, essentially a gimmick, this this subway giveaway gimmick. And he's a very like nice seeming guy. He's an appealing figure. I mean, that's part of what you get there. So 
the space in which people seem to be able to think about a critical evaluation outside of the most personal kind of schoolyard level seems diminished in that space and kind of reflects in how people were processing me. You could, I mean, you could see that in a lot, of, a lot of the things. Like the image of what I did or who I was, was it was like I kicked some sand on his shoes or something like that. That's the way people were treating me, Naomi. From what I understand, Devon's stature and his fame, you know, his whole narrative hinges a lot on kind of positioning him as a kind of outsider and underdog. And I think, you know, the way that people reacted to this review is kind of as if you had sort of gone to an artist who had nothing, you know, no stature whatsoever and completely eviscerated them. And there's kind of an unspoken rule in, in criticism that you kind of, you don't pan a show from an artist who's just starting out. There's no one who's saying this person is excellent and great and amazing. There's no narrative to kind of counter there. And it seemed like you were kind of playing by the rules of art and what is sort of in the public realm. Well, I mean, when I ended up processing this, trying to figure out how to think about this reaction and getting torched like this. Have you guys seen that movie Birdman? It's about a Hollywood actor who goes, to Broadway. And there's a critic character who's like the New York Times critic. There's a scene where the critic is like, I am going to destroy you because I hate everything you represent. You're an outsider, you know, in the real theater. And I want to bring you down. And that is like the image, which I guess to be fair is in this movie. So it's a popular cultural image of what the critic is. But critics of any kind haven't been gatekeepers in a little while. I mean, it's something people talk about a lot. I mean, we just had, you know, a 15 minute conversation about the market. Like we're all like unpacking what's happening after it's happened. And in the case of what I consider a relatively new phenomenon, which is this social media stardom around art, like I'm just trying to figure out what it's all about. You know, like that was the spirit that I went into this review is like, how can I like understand these dynamics definitely after it's already happened? I mean, for people who don't know Devon Rodriguez, he met the president. You know, he met Joe Biden and gave him a drawing of himself. And, you know, Biden's like, oh, wow, it looks like a photograph. I can't gatekeep this person, even if I wanted to, which I'm definitely not someone who's here trying to keep people away from their deserving success. It's just a very interesting phenomenon, this kind of like perception or maybe better say like a story that is being told because it's like a seductive story, right? And I'm really trying to figure out how the real story, what's really going on, is changed underneath the stories people keep telling themselves. And we should we should probably move on. But just one thing I did want to say is that I did write a follow-up to this where I talked about getting dragged. And I was, like, full of anxiety all week, thinking about it and trying to process, trying to understand what was going on and think about it in the most reasonable way. And when I did, I posted a screenshot of my article onto my own Instagram and said, you know, like, I'll just put this up now so that people can have a thing to comment on um, say what they need to do. Really just anticipating going through the experience of getting dragged again. And actually, the exact opposite happened that I think once my audience who maybe weren't following the Instagram conversation once I talked about in public what had happened, people really were just very nice. And all these people came forward to defend me and comment on the post in a nice way. And I was surprised at how good that felt because I feel like I'm pretty tough. I don't really worry about being criticized. I worry about being wrong. And I felt like I could just stand by what I was saying. So even when people were coming at me in very personal terms, I could just be like, that's your opinion. I wish you'd actually read the article, but you know, I'm not going to let it bring me down. But it did bring you down. That amount of negativity from like that many 
thousands or tens of thousands of people like does get you down. And it was, you know, I have people kind of like come back around, did feel well. And I don't know what's next, but Devon took down his original post attacking me. And I don't know if that's because he had a change of heart after I sort of responded or whether he's just got new sponsored deals coming up. Maybe he realized that it's a bad look to be the one hating on the underdog, which I think in this case is you. (laughs) That's where we're at. We are. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting also just, you know, how this podcast, which we do once a month, really kind of looks behind the headlines. And it's kind of interesting just thinking about Naomi's reflections on Freeze. And it's not really like a London versus Paris narrative, but actually maybe like a Paris versus Basel narrative that can be more interesting. And I think, you know, in general, it is interesting to see what sort of froths at the top versus what sort of lies underneath it as per not getting judged just by a headline, which I feel like is what happened to you, Ben, because you wrote a very diplomatic piece about Devin, I thought. Well, thanks, Kate. Speaking about things that always get headlines and someone who's even more famous than Devin Rodriguez is my uh, transition what? on this. There's somebody more famous. Um, and I actually quantified this. Mona Lisa is coming in with 517.2 million views on TikTok. So she's up there. I, <laughs> Mona Lisa came up in the news again recently. And obviously this is a painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Researchers have found that in the painting, which they have done some microscopic research on, there is a new kind of material that was found that no one had ever seen before in his paintings, a toxic compound called plubonacrite, which is a byproduct of lead oxide, apparently. And it creates this kind of glowy orange color. It was used by Rembrandt in his paint mixtures. And so it was kind of this like big revelation in the news that there's something new that's been discovered about this very overexposed painting as per my TikTok stats. So I wanted to sort of talk about that and also, you know, talk about the headline phenomenon of these sort of restoration stories that come up. Yeah, it's a big little... And you're laughing at me. I'm just laughing at you. No, I mean, I'm just laughing uh, uh, just at the world we live in. Yeah, I mean, this is like a big little story, right? I mean, I think the thing that's just notable to me is just that the Mona Lisa is still making news. Just standing still. I don't think the fact that uh, Leonardo used lead oxide in the ground layer of the Mona Lisa is like a huge story. It's interesting to people who study art technically and think about the history of art. My first thought was like, wait, they're still taking samples of paint from the Mona Lisa? So I looked it up and yeah, it's a 2007 sample, you know, from underneath the frame. They're not allowed to touch these things anymore. They use, you know, super scanners and and x-ray technology from afar to kind of get an overview of what's actually there. And I think this one, they had a sample, an early sample, but they think they saw it with an x-ray of some sort. Well, that was something you said earlier offline, Naomi, that I thought was a good point, is that the larger phenomena is there is this whole renaissance, I guess, of stories that have to do with old paintings because there are all these new tools to like scan them. And so suddenly you're just discovering new things about artistic process and things that are happening underneath the surface. So that's become kind of an art news staple these days. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's sort of just a misunderstanding because contemporary art is what it is today. And sort of narratives around individual artists are, you know, very compelling. People kind of like to think of like the Renaissance painters and these kind of other figures from art history as kind of being the same, you know, an artist in their studio. But actually, they were much more complicated operations. You know, what makes a Leonardo a Leonardo? How much involvement does the actual man Leonardo have to have in order to be considered like a legitimate author of a painting? You know, maybe if I could bring together the three items that we talked about today, 
I guess I was thinking, what is the bigger story here? Was the story within the story? Like, why is this news? Finding a new fact about the ground layer of Mona Lisa. And when you read people comment on it, it's like the story is, well, it shows what an experimenter Leonardo was because he was doing things in different and experimental ways, as much a chemist as he was a painter. So basically... What people go in when they study, you know, they point like high-tech instruments at the Mona Lisa is they, the revelation they discover is, you know what? Leonardo was a genius. <laughs> and that's why it's news because it like affirms the pre-existing story we have about this painting and about this artist. And I think, yeah, in all three of these stories, a little bit of a thing about, you know, the power of larger narratives to shape how we experience things, whether it's like the London versus Paris kind of age old rivalry or in the Rodriguez story about how old kind of stories about how artworks, you know, affect new way people receive new kinds of phenomenon. So that's my attempt to put a bow on all this. I'll take it. I mean, I think also when I was thinking about this Mona Lisa story, I was remembering that, you know, the quote unquote Operation Night Watch that they started in 2019 at the Rijksmuseum. They did this huge conservation project, again, using all these crazy tools, as Naomi mentioned, that we didn't have access to even a decade ago, but also social media, which we didn't have access to a decade ago. And so there was this glass box at the Rijksmuseum, and it was like a constant flow of press releases coming out of this museum in Amsterdam with all these sorts of news stories, essentially. And I feel like that's had sort of some knock-on effect where it feels like every other week there's some incredible revelation from some painting that's just been, you know, gathering dust, so to speak, in these museums and is probably generating more foot traffic and more interest in old masters, which, you know, can't be a bad thing. I mean, I think about Artissima Gentileschi, which, you know, we talked about offline, um, this old master's female painter, and they just discovered, again, through x-ray technology, that one of her paintings was a nude that was destined for Michelangelo's museum and that had been painted over to sort of make her less scandalous. And then suddenly you have more insight into how censorship worked in the 16th century, for example. right. The art world is a never-ending well of fascinating uh, tidbits and news items, so it's been fun to dissect them with you guys. I really appreciated chatting today. The art news never stops, (laughs) not even about things where the artist has been dead for 500 years. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us today, Naomi, and thanks for being on here, Ben, again with me. Ah, thank you for talking, Kate. One of the highlights of my month. Thanks, Kate. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Carolyn Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.